0: Pasquale Perez is a name that lives in infamy in Atlanta Braves sports baseball history. Perez was a Braves starting pitcher for four seasons from 1982 to 1984. In his first year with the team, one night Perez was late getting to the stadium. He actually missed the game. This was on an evening when he was scheduled by the manager to start the game pitching. Perez spent two hours driving around Interstate 285 looking for the right exit. He circled the perimeter of Metro Atlanta twice that night. When he finally stopped to get gas, the station attendant recognized him and said everyone at the ballpark was waiting on him. He gave him directions to the stadium. Well, from that moment on, Pasquale was known as Perimeter Perez. He even had a jacket made with I-285 printed on the back. He got trapped in an endless loop, and he couldn't get out, as did the Apostle John. I've heard it defined, a loop is a process where the end is connected to the beginning, So that the process gets continually repeated. There are video loops that play continually. It's a continuous replay. There are program loops that trap your computer into automatically duplicating commands. And there are also spiritual loops. Where one action leads to another, then to another. It eventually loops back to the beginning and the process runs repeatedly. This is what John describes in his letter. Christianity is a wonderful, a desirable loop. It begins with faith, which then leads to life, which then leads to love for God and for others, which leads to obedience to God's commands, which ultimately leads to victory, which then refortifies the faith which started it. The loop then starts all over again. Faith produces life. Pasquale lapsed the perimeter one more time. Well, chapter 5 takes us on this loop, this desirable loop. Verse 1 begins, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And here is where Christianity begins. This is where the spiritual loop starts, with faith. You can hit the switch as much as you like. Like starting the car in the morning, you can turn that key multiple times. And you might hear some clicking noises under the hood. Your conscience might rattle you a bit. But the engine won't roll over. It won't really catch fire without faith. I know people who come to church. They learn a few verses. They understand a truth or two. Even talk about God. It's like turning the key, but nothing happens hey, the engine in our spiritual life doesn't fire up until we believe. You don't become aware of the life of God and the Spirit of God until you stake your life and destiny on Jesus. If you want to be born of God, if you want to be made alive and aware spiritually, then you have to personally bow your knee to Jesus as the Christ, that is, as the promised King. The English word Christ is from the Hebrew term Messiah, which means anointed one. And this is what the Hebrews did with their king. They would anoint him with oil. Thus Christ is God's promised king. He's our deliverer. And my question to you this morning is, have you trusted your life, your all, to King Jesus? Have you made him your Lord and your king? If not, you have yet to be born of God. Well, John continues, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Of course, to beget means to sire or to father a child. In a sense, every Christian is born of God. We've been begotten spiritually. The seed of God's word is planted in our hearts. The Holy Spirit brings it to life. But Jesus was begotten of God in a unique way. He was born of God physically. The Holy Spirit hovered over the womb of a virgin, and God's Son became a man. We know in the case of Jesus, which was the only time such a miracle ever occurred. For in his gospel, John calls Jesus, in chapter 3, verse 16, God's only begotten Son. Jesus holds exclusive, celebrated status. He is begotten of God in a way that no one else is begotten. John says, if you love the Father or him who begot, then you'll love his Son who is begotten of him. You know, the greatest kindness that you can do for me is to be nice to one of my kids. Get my son a job. God bless you. Or help him out with a project around the house. Or help my daughter-in-law out with her kids. And I'll treat what you've done as if you've done me a favor. And so it is with God. Jesus is God's only begotten son. Thus, to love God is to love his son Jesus. But the opposite is also true. Deny or defame God's only begotten son. And you reveal your hatred for God. This is what's so frightening when you stand before the Dome of the Rock there in the heart of Jerusalem. You shudder to see such blatant blasphemy against God. On the Temple Mount there stands a Muslim shrine and wrapped around the top of the building in Arabic script is the blasphemous phrase, God does not beget and God is not begotten. That is a targeted assault On John 3.16 and on 1 John 5.1, it is a direct denial of the deity of Jesus. This Muslim holy site is the same ground where the Jewish temple once stood. And the Muslims have made the same mistake as did the Jews. They've denied the unique birth of God's only begotten Son. It reveals both religions' hatred for the Savior. Hey, John is saying, if you don't love the Father in heaven, you don't love the Father in heaven if you hate his Son. This is why the good Jew or the peace-loving Muslim isn't going to heaven, for they both have insulted God. They've denied his Son, the same Son that the Father sent to save us. John tells us in verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God, When we love God and keep His commandments. Again, how do we know that we've truly been born of God and have His love in us? The answer is, do we love God enough to obey His commandments? Remember, true love is willing to love the other person in the way they want or need to be loved. Not just love them in the way that's convenient for you. This past Friday, my wife showed me true love. It was true love. See, she likes to pull weeds out of our front yard, which is a good thing. It's kind of rare to find a wife who likes to pull weeds. It's a good thing as long as she collects the weeds that she pulls. But when she pulls weeds and then just kind of tosses them back over in the grass... Apparently, so that her husband will have to come behind her on his hands and knees and pick up all the weeds that she's pulled, it becomes a terrible thing. It's like one of the worst things you can do to your spouse. No wonder he always complains about this. Well, this Friday, I came home, and on my back porch, for the first time in our 38-year marriage, there was a bucket of weeds. I was so proud of her. My wife had collected every weed that she had pulled that day so that her husband wouldn't have to come behind her and pick up those weeds. I felt so loved. And if you love God, this is how you'll show Him. You'll love Him in the way that He wants to be loved. You'll keep His commandments. You'll be humble and compliant, as verse 3 tells us, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, John says. Don't think you've made some colossal sacrifice by keeping God's commandments. It's not like his requirements are grievous and not good for you anyway. In Matthew chapter 11 verse 30, Jesus said, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It was the power-hungry Pharisees, the Jewish legalists, who weighed people down with meaningless regulations. They wanted to bully you and show that they could keep you under their thumb. They were like the teacher who assigns homework only because she doesn't want you to go out and play when you get home. On the other hand, Jesus asks us to do only what's best for us in the first place. His commandments are light and they're easy. It should be our joy to bring him pleasure. When my son Mac was living at home with us, I I could tell him to wash and wax my car. Mac, I want you to vacuum out the interior. Make sure you armor all those tires as well. And by his reaction, you would have thought I had asked my son Mac to walk to the moon. But let's say he had a date. Oh, my. He wanted to use my car. I wouldn't even have to ask. It's amazing the time he would spend sprucing up that car. You'd think he was in the detailing business. And the difference, one word, love. That's why God's commandments are never a burden. For when we love God, we'll want to obey Him. You'll see His commandments as a way to please the person you love. What a difference love makes. Verse 4 tells us, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Hey, the world is applying outside pressure to us to conform, to give in to sin. But God has planted His Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit mounts an inner resistance to the world. Thus, the key to us being an overcomer is learning to live from the inside out. Remember, your strength is on the inside The life of God is growing in you. His peace, His love, His joy, His power, His wisdom is swelling up on the inside of you. See, the Christian life is like a helium-filled balloon. Fill a balloon with helium and it rises despite the gravity that wants to keep it down. The life of God's Spirit also gives us a buoyancy, a spiritual lift. That not only helps us to undergo hardships, but to overcome those hardships. He says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What is the key to living inside out? It's faith. It's us trusting in Jesus. This is what activates his life and power in us. But verse 5, who is this who overcomes the world? But he who believes That Jesus is the Son of God. In verse 4, John wrote, this is the victory, our faith. But in verse 5, he clarifies that it's not just faith. It's not just sincere faith. It's faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. Faith is only as good as its object. It's interesting, the Greek word translated victory in verse 4 is the word Nike which was also the name of the Greek goddess of victory. Apparently, she wore fancy sneakers with a swoosh logo. Hey, whenever you see that Nike swoosh, and you don't have to look very far, it's everywhere, let it remind you of your victory in Christ. Literally, we could read verse 4, and this is the Nike that has overcome the world. And if you're thinking of the shoe manufacturer, don't conclude, just do it. The opposite attitude should be true of us who are Christians. God doesn't want us to just do it. The work's already been done. He wants us to trust in Jesus. This is the Nike that has overcome the world, our faith. Jesus did the work for us, and now we need to learn to apply His victory to our lives. It's our faith that unlocks His power in our our hearts. And so here is how Christianity is this desirable repeating loop. We begin with faith. Faith in Jesus then produces spiritual life. Life means a love for God and a willingness to keep his commandments, which then causes spiritual lift and victory over the world, which then reinforces our faith, which brings us right back to life. And on and on we go. As Christians, we grow from grace to grace to grace. Now remember, John's letter addresses the dangerous heresy that would later be known as Gnosticism. It was the heretical belief that denied Jesus was God in the flesh. And there were two types of Gnosticism. Both were named after the men who championed the heresies first was called Docetic Gnosticism. It taught that Jesus was a phantom. He was a ghost. He had not really come in human flesh. His body was only an illusion. It was an apparition. The other branch was called Cerinthian Gnosticism. It taught that the Spirit of Christ came on the man Jesus at his baptism, but then departed before his crucifixion, so that it wasn't really the Son of God who was put to death. Well, here in a single verse, John cuts down both these heretical branches. Verse 6. For this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, But by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. Water refers to Jesus' birth, his human birth. Hey, his mother's water broke. Jesus was born a human birth. He was not a phantom, he was not some apparition. He was born with a body, he was flesh and bone. The blood refers to his death. The Savior of men, the Son of God, spilt literal blood upon the cross. It was Jesus there upon that cross. Jesus was God at birth and God at death. And thus both His sinless birth and His innocent death combined to save us. Verse 7, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are 1. And here is where we find some controversy. Now realize the authors of the New Testament, they wrote in Greek. Your English Bible is a translation of the Greek. We don't have the author's original writings, what we call the autographs, but we do have copies of very ancient scrolls, some dating back to the first century. To be exact, there are 5,800 Greek copies of the New Testament. Scholars have examined these different scrolls and their minimal variations, and they've determined that their content is in 95% agreement. The few variations that exist are mostly spelling and grammar. They account for zero discrepancies in doctrine. Now, since 1 John 5 verse 7 appears, In just a few of the very, very late Greek manuscripts, some people have questioned the authenticity of this verse. As a matter of fact, some of the newer translations leave it completely out. Perhaps you have a Bible that leaves the verse out. The King James translators chose to include the verse, but in the New King James, you'll notice there's a qualifying notation in the margin. It is interesting that none of the early church fathers used this verse to defend the doctrine of the Trinity, and you would have thought if it was available to them, they would have. They were arguing over this doctrine. They were debating it, and this verse is so clear, it would seem strange to leave it out of the argument. The phrase, these three are one, is certainly a definitive declaration of the Trinity, It is possible that verse 7 was added later in the 14th, 15th century AD and thus shouldn't be in the Bible. If that's true, it means that the King James translators made a mistake. Not John and not God, but the translators. The original writings were inerrant. God made sure that what was written was exactly what he intended to be written. But the compilation of the material involved human decisions, and it was here that a scribe, perhaps someone else, could have made an error. The question of verse 7 is one of translation, not inspiration. Was it the work of an overzealous scribe who got carried away and took it upon himself to reinforce a doctrine? Or was this actually penned by John? We really don't know. It could well be that it was a scribe. But this verse doesn't teach us anything that the rest of the Bible doesn't teach us as well. That's not repeated elsewhere in the Scripture. For the Father, the Word, that is Jesus, and the Spirit are one. The Bible teaches from cover to cover that God is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The moral of this story is that the scripture originally written doesn't need our help. It conveys all the essential doctrines without us adding to it in any way. It is always a mistake to do so. There is no doubt as to the authenticity of verse 8. And there are three that bear witness on earth. The spirit, the water, and the blood and these three agree as one. Now remember, John is writing this verse to counter the Gnostics. And in this regard, it's a fitting argument he makes. Jesus was born a man, thus the water. A dove lighted upon him at his baptism. He was testified to by the Spirit. And Jesus the man died a human death on the cross, thus the blood testified of Jesus. All three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, his baptism, his birth, and his death, all agree on Jesus' dual nature. He was fully God and fully man. Verse 9, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he has testified of his Son. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself, He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. The Spirit, the water, the blood testified of Jesus. This was God's objective stamp of approval on Jesus. But the fourth witness is the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. Here he says that a true believer has an inner subjective assurance that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is God. And then verse 11, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I've seen fellas kick back by the lake with a fishing pole in their hand or actually paddle out in the ocean on top of a surfboard or maybe stay on a golf course on a stellar day, and they'll say to their friends, Wow, this is the life! But is it? While some folks are satisfied with so little, if participating in a temporary pleasure Or just a physical thrill, if this causes you to say, This is the life, then I hope you think again hey, if all that life is to you is scratching an itch, how sad. Real life is being touched by the God who created you. Real life is brushing up against eternity and knowing that your life is going to count forever. As John says, He who has the Son has life. Real life is encountering Jesus Christ. I hope that you have encountered Jesus. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. John wants us to know that we have eternal life and continue to believe. Throughout the New Testament, we learn it's not enough just to believe once but we're exhorted to continue in our faith. Verse 14, now this is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Hey, if God hears our prayers, then we can be confident that he will answer our prayers. In his time and in his way, certainly. But he promises to answer all of the prayers that he hears. And so the key to prayer is to get your prayers heard. Here's the question. Does God hear all of our prayers? And the answer to that is yes and no. Sure, God is omniscient. He sees all. He knows all. He certainly hears all. In one sense, he hears our prayers, but in another sense, he doesn't hear every prayer. And we should be glad. Here's a riddle for you. What do you get when you cross a termite with a praying mantis? Answer, an insect that says grace before he eats your house. (laughs) You hope God doesn't hear the prayer of a termite. There are prayers that I've prayed that I'm glad God didn't hear. After I prayed them, I was sort of embarrassed. I kind of wanted to take it back. I can't believe I prayed so selfishly and so pridefully. You know, if you have kids, you know that when they're little, they whine a lot. Don't worry, they outgrow this. When they get 25, 30 years old, they outgrow that. But when they're little, man, they whine a lot. They ask for everything. And when they don't get it, they ask again and again and again. You know, when my kids were little and they would start to whine, you know what I would say? I can't hear you. In one sense, I could, but in another sense, I couldn't. I can't hear you. I would just refuse to entertain their quibbling. And I'm glad God takes the same approach with adult whiners like me, like you. God answers only the prayers that he really hears. Prayers that make it past his ears and down into his heart. This is why when we pray according to God's will, that's when we're certain that our prayers will be answered. Verse 16, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin, Which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Now, the Bible lists a few cases of sins that led directly to someone's death. In Leviticus chapter 10, Two priests, Nadab and Abihu, they polluted the worship of God, and God struck them dead right there on the spot, right there in the tabernacle. In Numbers chapter 16, the ground swallowed up a rebellious Korah. When he started complaining about Moses, his God-appointed authority, when this happened, the ground literally swallowed up Korah and all of the rebels. Be careful about complaining about your pastor. If the ground starts breaking up, be be careful. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, Uzzah was struck down dead when he touched the sacred ark with sinful hands. In fact, even in the New Testament, there were sins leading to death, specifically leading to death. You remember in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they died when they pretended to be more spiritual than they really were. They played the hypocrite and they lied to the Holy Spirit and God struck them down. As a matter of fact, John may have expected one of his own contemporaries to be struck down by God. We have an extra biblical record of this. One of John's disciples, a man named Polycarp, he writes of an occasion when the leading Gnostic at the time, Serenthus, remember we talked about the Serenthian Gnosticism? Well, apparently this Serenthus he was inside the Roman bathhouse that John happened to enter. When John was told that he was there, he immediately rushed out shouting, Let us fly, lest the bathhouse fall down, because Serinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. John must have thought that God was going to strike him dead right there on the spot, and John didn't want to be collateral damage. John, the apostle of love no less, Never put it past a God of truth to judge a spiritual liar when he deemed it time. Of course, the sin that leads to death is not always the same sin. And a person who commits the same sin under a different set of circumstances may be spared. Let's face it. If everybody who played the hypocrite and claimed to be more spiritual than they really were were struck dead... Like Ananias and Sapphira, it'd sure clean out a lot of our churches. we probably have a lot smaller crowd here today. I mean, some of you'd start singing, all to Jesus, I surrender, and boom, you start dropping like flies <laughs> all over the sanctuary. My, oh, my. But there are certain sins that in certain situations do prove to be such a blight on the body of Christ that God sees fit to arrange an early exit for the perpetrator. I've heard modern examples of this as well as the biblical ones that I've mentioned. John's point is is that if you see a brother sin, pray for him. If it's a sin leading to death, you'll know soon enough. If it's not, then your prayer could just turn him or her around. And then verse 18 tells us, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. We discussed this back in chapter 3. It could be translated, whoever is born of God does not continue in sin. We all are going to stumble. None of us are perfect. But a person who's been born of God doesn't sin habitually. The power of God lives inside them. No one's perfect, but God eventually makes us an overcomer. John goes on, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. I hope you don't believe that the devil lives in hell. Some people do. That's a mistake. The devil doesn't live in hell. Hell isn't his hangout. Satan doesn't want to go to hell any more than you do. The book of Job teaches us that Satan is going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. Apparently, the whole earth is Satan's turf. As John puts it, the whole world lies under the sway of Satan. You want to know what's wrong with the world today? It's under Satan's sway. At this moment, Satan is alive and well on planet earth, and he's being allowed a broad swath of influence. But there is one place that the devil and his demons can't intrude without God's specific approval, and that is a man or a woman who has been born of God. We, friends, are the untouchables. Remember, Satan couldn't harm a single hair on Job's head without first getting God's permission. Recall the verse that I encouraged you to memorize a few weeks ago. I hope you've memorized it. Chapter 4, verse 4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. God is greater than Satan and his hordes and anything he can throw at us. At times, God allows Satan to tempt us, even test us. But you can be sure it's always for a good purpose. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. Now throughout this book, John has dropped reasons why Jesus came into the world. Remember back in chapter 3 verse 5, he was manifested to take away our sins. Chapter 3 verse 8, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Chapter 4 verse 9, that we might live through him. Chapter 4, verse 10, to be our propitiation or our place of mercy. And now here in chapter 5, verse 20, John tells us, The Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him. Jesus came to reveal God to us. Now God had revealed Himself to mankind in His written word, the Bible. Now He reveals Himself to us in His living Word, Jesus Christ. And the two combine to provide us a wonderful picture. The Bible tells us God is love. But oh, how we realized it when Jesus touched the leper's skin. When He forgave the woman that the crowd wanted to stone. When He gave that dead daughter back to her father. How we realized His love. The Scriptures speak of God's patience. But Jesus, when he forgave a broken Peter on the shores of Galilee and recommissioned him, despite his colossal failure, oh, how we learned of God's patience in a vivid way. You see, the Old Testament spends page after page telling us about God, but it's not the same as seeing him in action. You could say the Bible is the book, whereas Jesus is the movie. The Bible tells us what God is like, but Jesus shows us what God is like. It is the declaration and the illustration. Verse 20, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Jesus Christ is the true God. He shares that with no one. He is the true God, and He alone has eternal life. Friends, we need to fall at His feet and worship Him. Today's notion that it doesn't really matter what you believe in as long as you believe in something, that's ludicrous. Our faith is only as good as its object. To say it doesn't matter If a man, whatever a man believes, as long as he's sincere, is like telling a doctor his diagnosis doesn't really matter as long as he tries his best. I don't want him as my doctor. (laughs) Or it's like telling a pharmacist that it doesn't really matter if the prescription he feels is accurate as long as he sincerely believes he's trying to help his patient. That's silly. Realize 7,000 people die each year in the United States from prescription errors. A wrong prescription can be lethal. And the same is true in matters of faith. John is clear. There is one true God, Jesus Christ. He alone has eternal life. And to live forever, you must believe in Jesus. Don't be vague about that. You must believe in Jesus John ends his letter little children keep yourselves from idols amen don't think idolatry was an ancient problem with no relevance to modern americans hey we're just as vulnerable to idolatry as the pagan with that little statue on his mantle Anything we value more highly in our lives than Jesus has in essence become our idol. St. Augustine gave a definition of idolatry that I found very helpful in my life. He said, idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshiped. Think that through. Material possessions are simply tools to be used for God's glory. But when we forget that they are a means to an end, and we treat them as an end in and of themselves, we've made them an idol. Keep yourselves from idols. Well, that brace pitcher, Pascal Perez, he got caught in the wrong kind of loop. But if you and I live life as John describes, we can get ourselves in the desirable loop faith produces life and life produces love and love produces obedience and obedience produces victory and victory produces more faith that's the kind of loop i long for that's the kind of loop i want to be in the victory that overcomes the world is our faith